Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Kurosh Tavakoli, better known as Dr. Tav. He's established himself as an internationally known plastic surgeon, particularly for his cosmetic breast surgery and hybrid fat grafting techniques. Dr. Tav is also an industry leader in social media, adopting platforms such as Instagram and Snapchat to connect and engage with his patients. Dr. Tav was kind enough to join us in the studio today while elective surgery is still locked down to discuss his thoughts on the cosmetic industry and the challenges that lie ahead. We had a family um, house in North London yeah. um, and just on Finchley Road. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so we used to somewhere between Highbury and, you know. Please tell me you're an what, Arsenal supporter. Yes. Yes. White Hart Lane, yeah. Yes. So, no, 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 White Hart Lane, that's not. No, I'm just saying that's what we had the two and <laughs> I always went for the red. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, perfect. So I always go back and I'd almost invariably watch a game at Emirates. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So oh, we've got a lot more in common than I've realised. I know nothing yeah. about soccer. Are you guys the right temperature? Do you want me to turn the aircon a little bit? It's a bit quite warm. warm, actually. I'll turn some yeah, aircon. Sure. Just Did you just call it soccer? soccer. You Australian yeah. Yeah, bogan. Soccer. Yeah, 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 soccer. So how long have you been here, Jake? Um, I moved 2015, January. So mm. I was you know, working in the so NHS. It's fairly recent. Yeah, it's coming it doesn't feel years. like it. I've had two kids and I've done uh, a... Australian conf- wife? Uh, no, English wife. So English. she came with me. Oh, she came with you. Yeah. Okay, beautiful. Um, yeah, I was working as a surgical trainee. So I was doing general surgery ah, and, okay. uh, in the NHS and did the whole, you know, everything. Which hospital? Uh, which one didn't I work in? So I worked at Northwick Park, which is in Harrow. I worked at the Royal London. That was my last hospital, major trauma centre in yeah. East London. Um, I was at Watford. I was at, uh, well, somewhere in Nottingham for six months because I sort of moved up there when I was a first-year registrar. Came back down to London, worked at Bart's, did breast surgery, did oncoplastic breast surgery there. Wow. So um, I did, you know, like eight years of it in the UK and then I did another two years here at RPA and Concord, Blacktown. You didn't want to be a plastic surgeon too hard? (sighs) Do you know what? When I first started, I wanted to do plastic surgery, and that's why I did my injectable training. I thought it would sit with it. And then when you actually do plastic surgery training, you end up just dealing with mangled hands, burns, dog bites, yeah. all the non-sexy stuff that no. wasn't in my <laughs> yeah. mind as being what we I imagined talk about to be that plastic actually, surgery. I've got very strong views about training cosmetic surgeons yeah cosmetic plastic surgeons but yeah we can talk later yeah we've had a noop on yeah, and we've okay. had joe on and a few other cosmetic and plastic surgeons and we've all kind of agreed that in the public system there's no cosmetic training there isn't a- no. at all no and, and this I is actually, the problem yeah it's a big problem because um we're on the topic we feel plastic surgeon we own cosmetic surgery and yet um, this other branch has just come about in in most countries which is cosmetic uh, you know surgery being practiced by people who haven't done surgery yeah. and I think that's the dilemma and I think the the combination one day will come will come alive where you are a surgeon yeah. you don't have to pretend um, to be 
wanting to be a plastic surgeon and then do cosmetic surgery. And then on the other hand, you're not forced out of surgery because you don't make a certain requirement or you get um, put off by the nature of the surgery. You're practicing dog bites, you know, tendon lacerations and so on. Yeah. And I think there'll be a, there'll be a point where um, the specialty, the College of Surgeon will look at this at some point and say, you know what, cosmetic surgery has been treated like a, um, a dirty disease for 25, 30 years in this country and mm. everyone did it in the first decade quietly, the second decade people like myself coming out, like let's like 90s being the first decade, 80s was practice, was was absolutely minimal. Yeah. 90s was basically everyone did it, but it was end of the list. You could see a whole heap of skin cancers and then you stick a breast augmentation and it was all hush-hush and mm. you weren't allowed to talk about it. It was, you know, um, it was, you know, the embarrassing cousin or uncle of cosmetic surgery was. And you weren't really able to talk about cosmetic surgery in the operating theater. It was like, you know, it was, you'd probably be allowed to talk about sex before you talk about cosmetic surgery. It was like, <gasps> we don't talk about that stuff. You know, yeah. I talk about skin cancer. I'll teach you everything you want to know. I'll talk to you about tendon repairs and craniofacial, you know, essence of plastic surgery and, um, and you know, Macondo and, and Gillies and, you know, all the forefathers of plastic surgery. But let's not talk about cosmetic surgery. Yeah. You don't want to end up in double bay, do you? <laughs> I was like, no, no, I don't think so. Um, so then... The 2000s, the few people saw what was happening with the cosmetic surgeons coming through the late 90s and thinking, you know what, this is the time you've um, you got to capture it. you got to come out and say, you know what, I respect my training. I respect um, what you've guys done for me and I feel very complete as a surgeon. I can go out and cut skin cancers and do microsurgery and I do max fact surgery but there's just part of me it doesn't feel right yeah. and I think it's probably be, be the equivalent of coming out of closet or you know, just saying <laughs> yeah. or you know what I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry mum dad I'm not this person or the other equivalent analogy would be being raised in an ethnic family and suddenly saying to mum and dad I want to be a, um, a, a rock star yeah. because I'll I just don't want to be a doctor. And yeah. he said, well, you got the marks. I said, yeah, I just don't want to be. And I think cosmetic surgery has always been treated like that. Yeah. It's something that you really, when you mentioned it, you, you're embarrassed by it. You yeah. know, it's like, I'm really sorry I want to be a cosmetic, but that's me. That's who I you know, sort of identify myself. Yeah, I um, had lots of conversations with plastic surgeons over the years and a lot of them have told me a similar story during their training. It dawned upon them that they wanted to eventually move into plastics but they would never tell their bosses. No. That's what they wanted to do. Like it was like, I want to do burns. I want to work in the public system. Like they just would not divulge their yeah. aspirations to do that in fear of being kicked off the program. So there were, there were two tier system. It was, it was actually three when you think about it. There was at medical school, if you wanted to impress your, um, you know, your faculty professors and stuff, you'd say, I want to be a researcher. So that was the first first tier um, embarrassment I don't want to be a surgeon because like in, in a medical school setting you've got to be academic put something back teach medical students so that's the first lie then you had to lie again come out out of medical school and do your residency in everything and say to your 
um, physician colleagues that you want to be a surgeon. I was like, oh, straight away, <laughs> there you go. You are you're going to be one of those sort of arrogant people who I remember that same story. Are dismissive of everyone. You don't want to look after the eighty year olds. You just want to you know chop away. And that was not even plastic surgery as a fact that you just want to be a surgeon. And then you get into general surgery, then the lie would begin. And the lie would be, I want to be a plastic surgeon. But how the hell do you tell a bunch of colorectal professors, very old-fashioned, they wouldn't even you know, use gloves to do examinations. <laughs> yeah. They actually want to be a plastic surgeon. So especially I did my initial training, RPA was very hierarchy, very yes. British system. So then the, another lie comes that you want to be, be a plastic surgeon, like, oh my God, that you're a sissy. There's something wrong with you or you're an opportunistic or, you, or you're not a proper surgeon because those colorectal vascular guys would look at plastic surgeries like you're doing skin grafts all day. And, yeah. you know, and the fact that plastic surgeons did microsurgery, they completely dismissed it. Yeah, it was like no, the no, tribalism no. In, in surgery is hilarious. Yeah, and finally you get into plastic surgery, and the, another lie comes out, and <laughs> this is the final lie that I really towards. Not, it'd be silly to say at the beginning of your training, but towards the end of your training, where the professor really loves you, and suddenly he says, "Okay, you are going to be the next Burns guru or craniofacial or uh, microsurgeon." <laughs> so look, you know, I, I do have an interest in cosmetic surgery, and a lot of people at that point wouldn't come out and say it, so they wouldn't get trained. Yeah, And that's the reality. 90% would stay quiet, finish the training, would not really show an interest in cosmetic surgery, and then finish, get the FRACS in plastic surgery and say, okay, now nah, I think I want to do cosmetic surgery. Where do I begin? Yes. And that's the problem with our training. It's really interesting because if a plastic surgeon was scared to say that, what does a, a general surgeon who has an interest in cosmetic surgery do about that? You know, who are they <laughs> going to turn to if you well, can't even turn to your professor who yeah. you've been under for many years? Well, we had an um, interesting yeah. chat with Anoop. Um, who's been around for a very, very long time. Yes, he's not a, yeah. not a plastic surgeon, but he's, a, a, as far as I'm aware, a very respected cosmetic surgeon. He's got mm. um, a very unique set of um, uh, surgeries that he sort of specializes in, I guess. I and mean, he was saying he had to go overseas. No one here was doing it. And it was very like, when he started, like he was one of the only ones and he had to go and find his own path. I think, I think um, there's a subgroup of cosmetic guys who are good enough to be plastic surgeons and they didn't put the time or they were shunned out or because of you know political reasons or you know they felt at the time you know the ethnicity stopped them from getting on a training program mm -hmm. because it was more of a impression obviously not true because i'm sitting here but an impression that was a waspy um old boys club that you couldn't get into yeah and i think um the the talent drain was massive and you know, these are all guys that we went to uni with. They're not, you know, they're not aliens. They didn't come from Mars and <laughs> land here and say, I want to be a cosmetic surgeon. These guys we trained with, but for whatever reason, didn't work out and they ended up becoming cosmetic surgeons. So I think part, part of the uh, uh, problem of them coming, coming about is because our guys, um, guys who were like in, were in prominence in the 80s and 90s that blocked them to such a degree that allowed them to come about and didn't see that. Mm. So at some point, I'm not sure when and I'm not sure in the future, there's got to be a consensus that um, whatever happened in the past happened in the past. And yep. I think we should all forget about it and whoever's training and, and they're in the 50s now and you know they'll probably see off their careers that way. 
but there's got to be a starting point. Um, I don't know when when the College of Surgeon probably puts um, cosmetic surgery as a subspecialty, mm. most likely a plastic surgery. Same way they've done, there's, a mo- there's been a model on this with colorectal surgeons who are general surgeons are no, longer, no yes. longer general surgeons. So you've got colorectal surgeons, vascular surgeons, upper GI, and so on and so forth. And I think we should have distinct hand surgery program, which we don't still. It's, mm. it's, it's there. It's 80% there, but it's not 100% there. Have a distinct hand surgery program, have a distinct microsurgery program, and which entails breast recon and head neck recon and so on and pediatric and craniofacial and then this other specialty that has got its own um, set of ideals and training and you know scientific principles attached to it that has to be respected and everybody can put resources into it and if you're a good person and you've got hand skills and you've got common sense which is a lot of what surgery is about you can enter it and become maybe like at an entry level plastic surgery and then divert into your specialty of cosmetic surgery. So from a patient point of view, Mm. from a consumer point of view, that's what we're here for. They'll see a person who did six years of medical school, two years of, uh, two or three years of general surgery, two or three years of plastic surgery, but then at at least four four years of cosmetic surgery and they feel confident from day one this is a person I want to go mm. to. Well, that was going to be one of my questions was how do we solve the problem with, you've got the cosmetic, <laughs> you've got like, you know, people like anaesthetists that have gone and done surgery. You've got yeah. people that have done general surgery doing cosmetic surgery. So how do you deal with the people? I know you said the past is in the past, but there's a lot of, I don't know if it's a 50-50 between plastic and cosmetic in terms of market share. I think um, for, for, this, for this problem to um, be solved, I think people need to recognize there's a problem. And I think people in power need to come together and say, um, A, you've got to recognize the other side. I know cosmetic surgeons do recognize plastic surgeons to a lot more degree Mm. than plastic surgeons recognize cosmetic surgeons. Um, This is like a basic political problem. You know, we have a geopolitical problems in the Middle East and there's no solution for that. (laughs) Here is on a lesser degree, but it's it's a turf war between two factions, two biker gangs, and they both want part of it. (laughs) Um, And I think not being... a not just being in support of plastic surgeons, most of my friends are actually spread evenly between plastic and non-plastic. But it's as a as a surgeon, I would obviously favor a, a formal surgical training. And I always have the analogy of a family member. If I had a family member, um, I would feel at more ease if that surgeon had had a history of surg- surgical training. Formal as a, training with a formal, qualification. Like a resident training on taking the appendix out and while taking the appendix out, the artery opened up and bled everywhere and was able to control that bleeding and then that was peer-reviewed and obviously at some point was ticked off and then the stage one was complete, mm. stage two. Now, when you talk about cosmetics, uh, surgeons, there's a whole array of cosmetic surgeons with variable degree of um, training and I have respect for them, I know them, they're friends of mine and I always say the issue they've got and I'll say to them and they know it until Ron Bezich, the president, is a mate of mine, you have a college with variable degree of people who are from 
general practitioner level of surgeon to I did three years of surgical residency, but I got bored to I almost sat my exam yeah. as a registrar. Oh, yeah, sure, no problem. And then, sorry, mate, who are you? Uh, I did cardiac surgery <laughs> in Melbourne and I got traumatized and had PTSD, so I became a cosmetic surgeon yeah. and so on and so forth. So you got a um, bunch of eclectic people who are all calling themselves on the same heading, but they don't have the same amount of training. And sure, they went back and did a bit of cosmetic surgery. But it would have been better if if we all have the same level of training and the same level of exams. And then we'd say at the end of it, which what I said a few minutes ago, and then at the end of it, it's like, okay, okay, you got your basic degree in plastic surgery. Now go and become a hand surgeon or become a cosmetic surgeon and I think that's what's going to happen yeah. but I don't know if it's going to be formalized cosmetic training or a cosmetic diploma people are talking about a cosmetic diploma a lot saying that you know you, you come out with an FRACS and then you go out and do a diploma in cosmetic surgery be it body versus face which mm. I think should be demarcated as well and so you become a facial cosmetic plastic surgeon nothing wrong with it is it doable i think it's doable but in the near future i think the egos will stop that from happening mm. and i think on the just to finish the topic because i don't want to politicize it too much as i said i'm fairly open to um anyone doing plastic surgery as long as they're trained properly and i think as under a uniform banner but i would say that um the way this the bad blood has been for 25 30 years it will need an independent body to do it. There's yeah. no way these guys will get into a room they'll end up punching each other out. <laughs> yeah. And because there's no respect level. Yeah. Plastic surgeons, they think they're way higher than the cosmetic surgeons. So you need an independent body to come and govern both. Yeah. An independent body with authority, a government authority, and say, listen, this is a big problem. We are looking after the patients. We look at the data produced of the complications and as a result we're going to streamline cosmetic surgery because cosmetic surgery is here to stay yeah. and it's just going to get bigger and hence we need to provide the consumer with the best outcome in terms of you know getting mm. the result and hence you guys fighting amongst each other for for ego reasons or whatever political reasons is harming the patient. Yeah. Well, you know, we're in exactly the same position with the injectable uh, experience because, of course, it sort of happened at some point 10, 15, 20 years ago where mm. people started playing with injectables, mm. not regulated, uh, anyone could do it, doctor, nurse, dermatologist, plastic surgeon. And now we're at a point where the various associations, you've got ASAPs, ASCD, CPCA, Nurses Association, all kind of squabbling over turf war, who, yeah. who can, who can't, where should it be done, who can open up after lockdown, yeah. Yeah. you know, earliest and so on. And it's really hard to kind of go back in time and, and grandfather in what the rules are because it's been doing it, I think, been doing I think, it for 20 years. I think with the injectables, you're probably closer because I hear there's going to be a, like a clear line in the sand one day that's saying, well, certain people just can't inject anymore and 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 if you want to be able to inject, you got to do X, Y, and Z. Mm. They've done this before. There's precedence. Um, I don't know if you guys will know this, but um, general practice training was very ad hoc mm. in the 80s and 90s and they brought strict regulation in 1997. As of, I think it was January 1997. I'm, I'm much older than you two. <laughs> um, they, they, they 
they just pick the day and they said from this point onwards, if you haven't got your, um, if you haven't entered the, the college of GP, you cannot call yourself a GP. Oh, yeah. You have to go and do general practice training. It was a huge thing. Yeah. It was a huge thing because everyone got out of medical school. And became was, a GP. Just overnight. became lazy. I remember guys was like bumming out and at the beach and saying, look, I'm done. I'm not going to, I've done my HSC. I've done my five, six years of medical school. I'm going to go and just become a GP. Mm. And it made a huge difference because people had to go and quickly become a member or they, they were pretty much jobless. Yeah. Mm. And that, that happened and, and the general practice training became so much better. Yeah. I guess, unfortunately, maybe it's going to take both for cosmetic surgery and injectables a really bad event to really shake people up and go what are we doing here otherwise there's no appetite to really deal with it i, I don't know i mean i think there's been enough i think i've i've been in, in this for 25 years and i think what's happened in the past five years with um tci and and the asian lady who yes. injected the i think that the, the significant events the only problem is not, not, the big problem is that we had um, the breast implant problems last year mm. where suddenly, you know, Brad Hazard, the Minister for Health, suddenly was inundated and, you know, and Hunt, uh, the great Hunt, um, the federal minister. And suddenly they, these guys are like us. They're just regular people who have X amount of things to do in a day. Yep. If, we, if these things come on the desk, oh, there's a breast implant cancer lurking around, guys, let's do something. It takes so much of their time away. Yes. I mean, all these events happened in 2016, 17, 18. But 2019 was a big year um, for plastic surgery, well, negative news. Yeah. And then let's not talk about March 2020 <laughs> and where this, yeah. what happened to these guys. So these guys, like suddenly they were going to address this problem. From, from my understanding and my sources, they were really going to sit down and have a parliamentary hearing about it. But it just got done by um, AOCL, the, uh, the problem with the textured implants last year. It was a huge effort for them to clean it up and yeah. for the TGA to take the products back and re-regulate. And this and the COVID-19 basically will probably, you know, take up all the time for the next um, two years. Yeah. I guess at least with the, the implant problem, it's not a cosmetic surgeon problem. It's everyone's problem. Yeah, of course. And yeah. so suddenly oh, yeah, yeah. everyone has for to... Them to... The time they, they have, the X amount of time they got in a day just yeah. got soaked up by AOCL yeah. and the parliamentary hearing never took place, yeah. even though it was promised that they were going to go and talk about the term cosmetic, the term surgeon, the term, the term plastic. They were just going to talk about all those qualifications that may be attached to it. As I said um, previously, it's got to be an independent body comes and regulates two kids fighting. You've got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and there's not going to be any sense until someone comes and says, okay, yeah. I can see your point of view. I can see your point of view. Yeah. Let's work towards not what you want, and what he wants, what's the best outcome for the patient? Because yeah. I really to, truly believe it's the consumers who yeah. will benefit from, from the turf war ending. Well, it's also really confusing for them because most people out there don't understand the differences between different surgeon qualifications and experience. And when something bad happens, it casts the whole industry into disrepute. It makes everyone look bad. Yeah. Um, and it's like, we need to just put the money aside, the turf war aside, the egos, and as you said, just what what is best for yeah. the patient. And I think together. there's another point David, to be made is the overseas medical tourism, which it's still going on and is, is bustling. So my, my thoughts are, and I strongly believe that if we have a tier system, as long as there are people who are happy to operate at 
you know, at a, at a certain level in terms of um, rebate and finances, and then why don't we just divert all that um, medical tourism that's leaving the country and let those guys do it? Like, for instance, there are liposuction clinic being set up who the head guy is amazing and he's training the junior guys. I'll give you just an example to highlight the issue. Mm. And a plastic surgeon like me will charge X amount to do the liposuction. But the liposuction clinic under supervision, as long as as long as the patient is aware that he's not or she's not being operated by the head guy, is getting done good at, at a beautiful facility in Australia by the Australian nurse supervised everything else. And then they don't have the risk of getting on a plane going to Bangkok, meeting a surgeon for the first time, not knowing anything about that person's qualification because we don't, it's not regulated. And I keep coming back to the word regulated. And then coming back and having I no problem, which is fantastic, but then have problems. Yeah. And I think that's what, um, I think if we can have a marriage between the two systems, we can offer the medical tourism um, yeah. levels of, I'm um, not, identical but very similar in this country well maybe now with covid and lack of uh, people being able to move overseas that, yeah, that's going to happen yeah. but um, yeah, yeah that's that's actually a very good point david mm. i think covid and the fact that we're not traveling i think there'll yeah. be some shake up in the industry now we've done things a little bit differently we just sort of ran into a conversation <laughs> we've had a beautiful chat around the issues with um cosmetic and plastics and some of the ideas you've come up with um, but maybe let's take a little bit of a step back and we'd love to hear about your journey because you've got a pretty um, interesting um, story, I'm sure, in terms of how you got to where, where you are now and, you know, when you got into plastics and sort of where you got to now. Would you just give us a little bit of background about your your, your story? Um, I, th I came to, my family came to Australia in the mid 80s. Um, we're part of the whole, you know, the Iranian revolution and um, we were kids, obviously, at the time. And my family's business, my father's business was heavily hinged in Europe and in, in, in the UK. And mm. we had a house there and we used to sort of travel back and forth. So when the whole thing happened with the revolution, well, first thing, um, my parents were amongst those who didn't believe anything was going to be staying permanent so we sort of ignored it and stayed and we stayed one two three years the war started and then things just got from bad to worse and mm. then they took us out of iran to england and boarding school and so i did my brother and i older brother and i we went to boarding school for i went three and a half years he did four and a half years so i finished my o levels and which then school did you get to at christ college um okay which is now Changed name, um, so Blackheath, okay, in right, yeah, yeah. southeast London, near Greenwich, actually. So I did. I was full border for three and a half years, which was pretty hectic, mm. coming from a, <laughs> a you know environment where you kind of you have a from a very protective Iranian family to a very regimental British system, yeah, which does shape you to to a large extent, very um, regimental, very disciplined, uh, very strict, but added a lot of values about the English way of living in the cold. Did you like it? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, definitely people asked me and, you know, I had more positive memories than negative. I mean, the weather was always terrible. terrible. But, you know, you made some real connections with people. I went to a school which was very international. So I suddenly met kids from, you know, Africa and Asia and, you know, kids, um, fathers were diplomats or business people. And mm. you make sort of that kind of bond and you become more of an international person in your dealings. And um, so that was um, that. And I came here and finished my high school here in Sydney Grammar, 
two years and then the rest is let's say is history medical school we did talk about you know the whole thing about medical school you sort of think what you're going to be but I always knew halfway through I wanted to do surgery and plastic surgery and then sort of geared my training towards becoming a plastic surgeon I did my American exam thinking I had to go to America to be a plastic surgeon I didn't mm. think in when I was halfway through in 1990 um, exactly 30 years ago you could become a plastic surgeon I, I had no concept you could be a plastic surgeon in this country I had this sort of American sort of thing in my head that you know you know, when you if you want to be a plastic surgeon, you have to be in California. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Beverly Hills. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. it was that. It was like you can't be a plastic surgeon here because they're not even called plastic surgeons; they're called reconstructive surgeons. Mm. The, the word was mainly geared towards emphasis was reconstructive, but the plastic bit was like, you know, and cosmetic. Forget it. That was like complete leprosy. You couldn't go near the term <laughs> le- um, pl- uh, cosmetic. Can I ask you about um, sort of your mindset when you're training? Because you're now the best or one of the best surgeons both in the country and maybe even internationally for breast did you set out to be the best or did that just sort of happen (laughs) i think being thank you very much um i consider myself as someone who's progressive and always trying to be the best at what i'm doing not best because people will call me the best um i kind of felt early on um whether i was going to be actually i was going to be a craniofacial kid surgeon mm-hmm. um, to probably in my 30s where I thought God, I don't know if I can deal with kids with deformities and so on and somehow I got sidetracked to cosmetic surgery that's too a, confronting that's a different, is that why you, yeah it was too confronting yeah. for me um, I felt whatever you do in surgery you gotta set your standards high yeah. and just try and achieve that standard and it was it just sort of happened um, that I got into cosmetic surgery I actually really enjoyed my training I loved my training I had a lot of fun doing you know microsurgery and all that kind of stuff I did enough of it because I, I, I went through fairly quickly I wasn't in a, I wasn't in a, such, such a long time that I hated it like most of my colleagues I was like in and out mm. and when I was in I knew I had to enjoy it and I had energy I was in my late 20s early 30s it was it was no big deal yeah um, no kids so it was easy just to stay up till two in the morning and do something I never bitched and moaned about it it was just I knew there was X amount of years you had to do it like conscription <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and then you come out so and then when I got out and then suddenly realized I did you know I worked at St. Vincent and Westmead and I loved doing that too it was for me every every stage was a stage I was mm-hmm. like I finished it and I didn't hang on to it I didn't have any sort of issue about hanging on I want to be the best microsurgeon I didn't have an issue being called oh well you know it's our crush when you always knew he's gonna go and do plus, um, cosmetic surgery I had no issue with that I took pride in the fact that I want to sub-specialize yeah. and give the best to my patient people looked at, at as, as a different thing saying oh well no he just always wanted to do be a cosmetic plastic surgeon because back then it was a bad thing mm. so for me um I enjoyed the stages of plastic surgery and when I got into cosmetic surgery, I was true to myself and I thought 
what is it that I do in plastic surgery is better than everything else I do. Yes. And it wasn't a monetary thing because at the time we were all making a lot, loads more money doing hand surgery and being compensated so much more. But I left that and I thought, this is not what I want to do. I enjoyed doing it. I did seven years of it. But I'm actually, now the phone call goes, I hate it. Yeah. It's bef- that's, that's, a, that's a trigger of his use. I was like, I don't want to go and do this hand surgery or, or a craniofacial case or microsurgery case. I want to be home. So I knew I wasn't. At, you know, in my mid-30s, I can't have that attitude towards my profession. Hmm. So I did things that I enjoyed. And when I did breast surgery, I felt um, I was naturally had a little bit more gifted towards breast surgery than other things I did. And I felt also the market was geared towards breast surgery, as in we lived in a um, city which was predominantly in at the time and still now um, has got an affinity towards the body and the way the body looks and the breast looks and even though I did a bit of um, facial cosmetic to just keep my interest up to really delineate is, is what I want to be doing for the rest of my career. I didn't want to pull the plug at 35 and I continued doing it for another seven or eight years and at some point I said, no, this is what I'm, this is what I'm good at. Mm. This is what I'm known for. So why don't I just put all my effort, energy, despite what most, most people say, you're mad, don't do this, you've got a big practice there. And this principle applied to injectables, yes. inject, applied to microsurgery, then injectables, then facial cosmetic surgery and now pretty much I do two, <laughs> two operations. The yeah. next step is retirement. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's nothing else to chop. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. When you look at the history of implant surgery, we've had the issues with the silicon um, in the past. Then we moved to, then, then they tried to use, um, you know, they put injected the silicon, le- the leaking, the, the Dow Corning. Yeah, yeah, sure, they, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then they moved to saline and that sort of didn't give the effect of too hard or too soft, sure, you know, spontaneous sure. deflation, all those sorts of things. Then they come up with the textured implants. Seems like every generation, we think we've got a solution to the problem. And then now recently we've got the ALCL, we've got these mm. issues. Do you think there'll be a, a time when we do things just with fat? like fat grafting or yeah. 3D sort of, I mean. I, I think I think that's an excellent question. People just randomly ask me that once a day in the yeah. consult because people want to know what's going on with implants because as we all know, patients are extremely knowledgeable and they read the news and Dr. they read Google. about you Everyone's and Dr. Dr. Google, Google <laughs> and they come with a wealth of information. A lot of it is needs to be qualified, but nonetheless. And answer to that question, David, is we are at a juncture in in our industry where we are dealing with the concept of a biological um, implant, um, which is what you call fat, versus um, purifying or just making the implants better. And I'll just quickly tell you a little bit about the implant and I'll move to the biological nature of it and the problems with it. And the problem with the implant, what is an ideal implant is an implant that doesn't move. So it, it feels natural. It looks natural and where you put it pretty much stays. And that seems very basic. And But it's something that in 55 years, 1965 was the first implant invented, 64. It has not been... So if the, if the implant had one feature, it lacked another feature. If it was textured, it didn't move, but it gave you seroma or, or gave you ALCL. If it was smooth, it moves around mm. and then suddenly you put it here but it ends up in your armpit. Um, and capsule contract. And, and, and then you like capsule contract. So the problem, 
at the more of a scientific level is that we need something that has got predictability and you put it there, stays there. Not so much the rupture and so on because they fix all that problem. So don't forget, a lot of those problems are fixed. We have new problems and it's basically what we're looking forward for the next 10 years, having an implant that does not clearly give you cancer or give you a lymphoma, i.e. the safety, but with the same token, that implant cannot um, move move around. And, and I think the, the problem I find with implant is we go around circle. We don't do an iPhone. I call it iPhone an upward trajectory mm. because iPhone 11, we all know it's much, much better than iPhone 1. There's yeah. no doubt. No one's going to sit and say iPhone 1 is better than iPhone 1. But sometimes the implants are being produced by these manufacturers. I look at it and think, look, I've been around for 20, 25 years. This implant is the same crap I was using for my bosses <laughs> in 92. Of course, they got black and blue in the face and say, no, you don't know what you're talking about. It's like this principle goes in a circle and we need to go up. It's just so a bag of stuff basically going in. It, yeah, it hasn't really progressed. hasn't progressed. And I think if you look at your colleagues like um, orthopedic surgeons and what they come up with, you know, they've got this sort of open the bag and this $30,000 implant comes out that probably talks to you <laughs> and we still got this bag comes out as a bag of gel you kind of feel a little bit ripped off in terms of technology and David's question about biological and fat grafting fat grafting has got um, it's very exciting obviously I'll talk about the good stuff I do a lot of it I started doing it like yeah, about seven or eight years ago and one of the very first guys here because I saw potential in it and it's just grown exponentially and I'm glad it's part of my practice. Um, but it's got its own set of problems and the n number one problem is the fact that making the fat stay um, and doesn't get dissolved by the body and that percentage adds a degree of unpredictability to cosmetic surgery and we spoke you know, for the past 40 minutes about the most important thing about plastic surgery, but all, all types of surgery, but cosmetic surgery in particular, when you're taking someone healthy and operating on them, is to give predictability. When you operate on someone's nose and you say your nose is going to be turned five degrees and you turn it up 10 degrees, you take that predictability out and you basically then turn around and say to them, well, gee, you can live with it, you're not going to die from it. But that is not the whole concept and principle of plastic surgery. Plastic surgery is about speaking to the patient, screening them, and screening the ones that you can't help or you can't help their expectation. And then after that, giving the predictability. If I give you the fat grafting number at 80, it's got to be 80% take. If it's 85, you know, it's take adds a degree of uh, unpredictability. If it's 45, it does the same. So that's number one problem with fat. And number two, just in terms of breast itself, not so much with the bum, buttock, but with the breast is it feels too soft. Mm. And I, I guess we spoke about the three principles that I, is a very, very basic principles of what a breast implant should feel. It's a feel, movement, and predictability where it stays. And with the fat, the feel, everything about it is good, but if you, even if it takes, it does feel too soft. And that doesn't, doesn't appeal to everyone. It appeals to some girls who want a small, small volume, but if you want a bigger volume, the, f the breast becomes fatty and girls don't like fatty breasts. They just like it perky and, and it doesn't give you the perk. So ultimately, to um, answer this question in, in a very long manner, you need probably a hybrid of gel somehow intertwined with fat 
be an implant form or an injectable form of gel where you get much more rigidity and density where the fat stays. And then you also have the fat grafting percentage stay in that 80-90% bracket. So that's the future, I think. Hmm. Yeah, it's been tried, hasn't it? A few years ago, there there was a, a body filler. I don't want to mention its name. Oh, yeah. And it just migrated because you're using such large volumes oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah, it yeah, just that. kind of squished everywhere. But yeah, I think exactly. the principle is sound. Like you say, you need something else to act as a scaffold. Scaffolding, that's the to, word. Thank you. To yeah. let it seed and, yeah. and the fat feel a little bit firmer. And then how, I guess the other challenge potentially, Kourash, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is if you're t- dealing with a patient that's super skinny that has super low fat, Mm. Where are you going to get the fat from to even well, graft into the breast? You can't. So um, you've got limitations there, yeah. Can you put my them on friend, a burger diet fr- for three months? <laughs> <laughs> my friend Joe, Joe, Joe Ajaka said he can find fat in there. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to send him my 44 kilogram uh, breast augmentation patients from Bondo Beach and see where he's going to get fat. Um, I think, and Jake, you mentioned about putting fat. I've done that. And the problem is they lose it. Yeah. And so, you know, you can lose fat just by principle of injecting. Yes. And then you lose fat by principle burning of burning like you know you i made the patient put up five kilos from 48 to 52 and then she goes back to her nature 48 the fat disappears yeah. so that disappearing fat is a big problem because it kind of the patient feels ripped off because and you know what you guys deal with patients they don't see the principle there's a science always behind it it's like i don't understand what you meant by 80 percent, 50 percent. you put it in it's gone and when you're dealing with implant surgery you got your 400 cc implant doesn't disappear doesn't disintegrate it's yeah. still there and i think that disappearing factor of fat grafting is something that scientists surgeons alike we have to work towards fixing can i ask how do you handle the fat you obviously take it through lipo and then what's your process of purifying mm-hmm. it or cleaning it and putting it back in so I've, I've gone through about seven different stages, <laughs> like I'm of iPhone 7 of um, <laughs> refining my fat. And pretty much at the moment, I use a fine cannula. I think the basic principles that I think are very important, fine cannula, um, very non-traumatic harvest, which is fine because I mainly do use it for breasts. I don't do a lot of buttock where you need massive volume and you, you the time is a huge problem. Yes. If you use a three millimeter cannula, you'll be there for eight, nine hours. Um, so fine cannula not super aggressive put in a canister make sure we have a non-touch technique so you, no one sees the fat um, like um, outside the canister so sterility is paramount um, and then what I have been doing for the past two years I've started to centrifuge which yes. is something that was invoked 20 years ago and comes on out but I think there's a lot of impurities by just using a sieve you just or letting the fat sit there yeah You're there's not blood get on it, it and debris yeah. And, yeah. so we just we just do a gentle spin and pretty much then it gets ready for injection it's um, those are the main, main principles don't use a large cannula um, and also when sorry when you're harvesting try and keep the blood pressure at a reasonable level so the canister doesn't fill up with with blood yeah so that at that point you also you're already not allowing a lot of centrifuge to get into your blood which stains it because blood and oil will reduce your take yes mm. and there's no there's no doubt those two components and i don't believe safely and effectively you can take those two components out 
without the predictability of a centrifuge. Mm. Have you played with the nanofat sort of cannulas or technology? Yeah, I was when I was towards the end of my facelift, sort of doing rhinoplasty. I was doing almost invariably um, some fat grafting, and I was doing nanografting yeah. at that level, and I do nanographs I don't do any more facial surgeries I don't offer the nanografting and I th- do believe in nanografting I think of every technique I did use nanografting was probably the most effective in the face and the face has got a very high burn rate mm. much more than the body it just the, the take is not as high but um, I do a little bit of nanografting around the nipple mm-hmm. when I'm doing tuberous because um, you, essentially intradermally you have to inject to um, camouflage the puffiness right. in the girls that we don't want to operate. We just um, they have this sort of tuberous, mm-hmm. more like a t- torpedo-looking um, nipple, and I just use it there, and it works really well. Now you're situated in Double Bay in Sydney, so for anyone listening internationally, I guess you could compare it somewhat to like Beverly Hills in California. <laughs> so it's the sort of the mecca. Um, so I'm interested to know your patient profile in terms of trends. I mean, it might be a little bit skewed because you're in double bay, but what are you sort of noticing as the trends in terms of aesthetically people are wanting in breast surgery? Are they still wanting the the sort of the, the stuck on porn star look or are we looking <laughs> for something that's more natural? Or what, what's, what, what are you seeing? No, it's, it's, it's unbelievable amount of change in the past two and a half years where we've like, dropped the cc's right down to hovering almost 300 280 when i was you know 10 years ago um i always said during the gfc the numbers went up i think people (laughs) just got so depressed they just got bigger boobs so back then we were hovering about 480 450 average we dropped down to mid 300s which i was happy because your complication levels drop and you know there's so much better for the patients and now we're going complete on a reversal to high 200s and um, early 300s. Obviously, there's a trend for the bigger um, style implants and you get that once once or twice a week, someone comes and asks for it. And you just got to spend a bit of time with them and, and suss out if they, you know, what's the motive and, you know, the psychology behind it and yeah. if there is any red, red flags. If not, then, you know, it's end of the day, you know, live in a free country. If someone's a 550 implant, they can have it. It's about understanding ask, it. You know, you've obviously in your head got your own perfect breast whatever that may be for the body frame do you ever turn people away where you say look i understand what you want but that's just not my aesthetic i I just can't deliver that yeah of course i had one yesterday and little um attractive lebanese girl who kept insisting to look massive Mm. and you know there was no need for her to look that big and i said look i'm just going to tell you if you're up your 40 minutes and if we continue you're not going to get your big implants here yeah um, i'm happy to just give your consult feedback and i'll recommend people who can help you with that kind of look yes. with my practice that look will destroy your body you know you've got a petite body everything's going for you you're for whatever reason what the fixation level was a little bit inappropriate yeah so um so she obviously through the psychometric and my personal interview with her she triggered the um the psych system and you know she'll be um you know referred on yes um and once she comes back as as passed then we'll and spend a few more consults with her and make sure that she doesn't want to stay in that range so there are definitely good scenarios where you kind of think this doesn't make any sense but most people are reasonable and yeah. most people aren't coming asking for silly things but on the on the other end of the spectrum there are women who come and ask for the most ridiculously tiny breasts and are 
with the same token, I sit them down and I said, look, why are you getting the cut? Why are you getting all the trauma? Why don't you, and I've, number of times I've said to them, well, you, all you want is a push-up bra. Mm. Look, why don't you just get a push-up bra? Because surgery is serious and you're putting your body through a big trauma initially, but then lifetime of having to worry about implants and screening and so on for like say a 200 cc implant, it's not worth yeah. it. It's also the uh, sustainability, you know, these young women are gonna grow into their 40s and 50s and you know, is a 600 cc implant gonna be sustainable at that no. age and yeah. The problem <laughs> is I've been, um, this is my 17th year in private practice and I, I see these people coming back and you know, they come initially with a, a 21 with the boyfriend who's uh, financing the <laughs> surgery, <laughs> yeah. but that boyfriend is at age 33 with two kids, well and truly gone. Mm. There's a husband who's got a normal job, and you kind of then have to sit and look at look at look him in the face and say, "Well, I was the one who put the 600." But now it, it's a different scenario. You look at that person at age 21 and say, "Well, I'm not doing it." Yeah. Um, and you know there'll be plenty of guys in this town who will do it for you, but I'm not going to do it because I have to look you in the face in 10 years' time and tell you why I did it, and I can't justify explaining a 600 cc on a size eight girl. Yeah, we've um, been speaking to. We had um, Dr. Shahidi on here, and he was talking about how um, social media has changed his practice, um, mm. potentially contributing to body dysmorphia, um, people having unrealistic expectations. Do you do you encounter? Um, many of those types of patients are you seeing yeah. an increasing and, and how do you sort of deal with it? I know we, you know, we both know Dr. Shab as well. And um, yeah, of yeah. course, of course. Yeah. Us, uh, well, Dr. Shab and I will go back a long way, but her and I, we started this whole um, screening system exactly 10 years ago, 2010, because um, I just thought there was a vacuum for a, a person of her caliber because, you know, you kind of say to someone, well, you know what, I can't really work out if you, you're having me on or you're actually genuine or like I need I need extra help and I think that's what it is as plastic surgeons or surgeon and fraternity we don't get help as much as we should outside help in order to screen our patients or help our patients with physio and so on so that's a different topic altogether but the social media issue is um, I think it basically highlights more of people coming through who are prone or susceptible to, you know, being abused by the cosmetic industry. Um, it's not our fault. I mean, we didn't create social media. We are just part of the whole process. is a is a worldwide process. When our college or our society says you got to, you know, turn down social media, I think social media is here to stay, and we don't control social media. We got to obviously have a very um, a responsible way of portraying the images and making sure it's like for like and not not over the top but um, social media is part of our society and our culture and it will stay um, has that created a subgroup of body dysmorphia I just think social media just brings it out I don't think gives you that I think there's a lot more if you speak to proper psychologists will tell you that there's a lot more in someone's development as a child and the upbringing and the psychosomatic of living mm. and you know high school years and all that kind of stuff and I think the social media is the byproduct of all those years and then if someone then reaches out to a, a lip person or a boob person or a nose person it's an extension of years of um, issues right. and I think our, so it's not point just saying it's, it's, it's social media's fault or there's a surgeon's fault or there's a marketing fault I think it's, it's a much more difficult and uh, protracted process and I think 
I think ultimately there are tools we have to identify people who need um, uh, help outside plastic surgery. We experience is one of them, but there are other tools and those tools are being developed every day. And I think that's what our society and American societies look at, at developing those tools where you sit down with a, with a mindset that this patient does not have to be a patient. And I think this is something I personally took me years to learn that you don't have to operate on every person. And the person can easily just sit here in your clinic and have a chat with you and you could easily turn around and say, look, I don't believe you're a suitable candidate. Now people say to me, oh, it's easy for you because you've got a busy practice. And I go, but that doesn't matter. If you apply it early on, you get a good practice and you get a good reputation and you get happy patients. So I think if we're true to ourselves, we deep down know which patients are not suitable candidates and the ones that we're not 100% sure and they trigger the psychometric but we're kind of not sure. That's why we get someone like Dr. Schaff who's got a wealth of information to say, look, I think you're being a little bit too harsh. She's not body dysmorphic. She's just a bit particular. And that's the difference. Someone being particular doesn't make them body dysmorphic. And this is a difficulty a lot of surgeons say. We label someone body dysmorphic, but they're not body dysmorphic. They're just very particular. Yeah. And identify them early on. And what Dr. Sheed is referring to is another phenomenon, and the phenomenon is they're not going to take crap, crappy result. And that's what it really comes down to. In very basic terms, if you have a someone with a particular need and particular expectation, and you feel you're not that surgeon to give her the look, don't operate on them. Yeah. Get, send them somewhere else, because they'll take selfies and look at themselves and give you hell <laughs> if you do operate on them. Yeah. And I think that could be a challenge for maybe junior surgeons that yeah. are setting up their practice. I mean, the landscape now is highly competitive. Um, everyone's competing for the same patients and perhaps there are a lot of junior surgeons that have got the technical skills, you know, you know, when, yeah. when, you've, when all you've got is a hammer, everything feels like a nail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's right. You know, That's how, how do they overcome that challenge? I mean, what would your advice be to junior surgeons that are going, wow, I need to set up my practice. I actually need to make money so I can feed my family and pay my rent. I've got to start turning away patients in a really competitive space. How do they, what would your advice yeah. be to them? I think my advice would be what we spoke um, early in our podcast is our training system is unfortunately deficient. We have a, and I'll come back to this because it comes down to our training. If we had a more rigorous training where it basically we offer three, four years of a high level of training to a upcoming plastic surgeon in cosmetic surgery, you know, a year rotation with a breast guy, a body guy and a face guy or a nose guy, whatever. And then that person in that process of learning the skill set to do the surgery understood the little, I mean, it's not easy by the way, you know, because you have to invite them to your clinic, mm. then have to uh, sit with you. And obviously it's got to be more structured sense and the patient have to give consent. There's a, patients are very finicky in, in particular body patient. They don't want to be exposed to a lot of people, but in that process, they'll learn the art of patient selection and, and, and establishing expectation. And I think that it's, it's in itself an art form where you're never going to learn that doing burn 
surgery or or replanting fingers two in the morning in an emergency setting where you you're a hero nonetheless mm. because the moment you if you put it on you're a hero if it falls off you're a hero you get paid for it you'll never get a bad review out of it and everyone pats you on the shoulder and you move on this is a completely different beast you're dealing with you know you, you're dealing with someone who comes to you with everything they've got they whether they're broken people or they're not broken people or they just have some sort of um you know insecurity it's your job to be able to say look i can't help you but i will help you and then that's the responsibility you take how do you teach that to someone david you can't it's, it's something that it's not in one setting sorry it takes a period of time to teach these younger guys that you know you can't operate on everything you see because that's what surgery is all about you're an FRACS you're a fellow Royal College of Surgeon not a Royal College of Psychiatrists <laughs> but you've got to say you need to basically screen them and you know, it's very different if you take the principle of general surgery, you know, you, op- or you operate on your on, on all the appendixes, appendix is flared up, book surgery, boom, you got to, it's, baby's got to come out. Or, you know, the whole thing about hernia and like these old, old fashioned general surgical examples, but not all noses have to be operated on. Mm. Not all breasts have to be operated and you can say, you know, in a very diplomatic way, maybe this is not the right year for you. Yeah. Maybe just wait a few more years to, for you to mature. You understand, like in in the nurse one, which is, is um, robust in all types of personality type, but borderline histrionic, you name it. Um, you, you find in a facial plastic patient, you just say to them, "Look, I just feel at the moment your expectation cannot be met. I cannot guarantee that nose on your face." And move on. And the younger guys upfront because David they'll filter through the system yeah. they'll start from the top and they go through and they'll find some guy who's just starting out and he feels he can do the job and um, unfortunately now it's unforgiving because we've got the social media and everything yeah. and patients are very vocal about it I think it sort of echoes what we've discussed on the podcast many times with injectables you know you can teach someone to inject a face but teaching someone to consult and and spot the red flags and have that experience to 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 just sort of have the feeling that maybe it's not the right day to do that face it's it's the same thing but taking it to to surgery you know yeah. you can't really teach experience it's it's you've got to do it and yeah. and learn from a mentor or something yeah you've got to have a mentor system we part of that training that I, I mentioned to some of our colleagues we have a mentor system someone comes and gets attached to you and you know you obviously get to know them make sure you're both compatible <laughs> personality and that person has to shadow you for a period of time yeah and i think um there are people who are happy to give something back to the system yeah as long as the system is set up that it supports that kind of training so we feel at the moment it's very ad hoc and i think the day comes where cosmetic surgery becomes a specialty i mean i'm more than happy to be part of it and teach the next generation but in in proper principle terms not come and spend two sessions with me and then call yourself the guru in plus in breast surgery or you know what i mean like it's got to be a a set period of time at the completion of it you get assessed examined given a diploma and i think that day will come and that day our patients will um rip the benefit it's Mm -hmm. having a a society where the surgical set in cosmetic surgery is so advanced that you know we we can reduce um complications and so on how do you think the lockdown would affect elective surgery i mean you've presumably got a backlog of what 
eight weeks now. Yeah. Um, plus you've got, you know, all these new plastic surgeons coming through. Do you think we're saturated or undersaturated in terms of the demand versus the supply? I think the lockdown is going to benefit the younger guys. Um, and I think this is a period they've got to be careful and not sort of jump into it. I think what David mentioned, um, it's paramount, the, uh, the lack of travel, um, especially for... for um, in the tourism, medical tourism, mm. that industry is probably going to be dead for the next 12 months. Yes. So that will allow the younger guys who have been in the round for like two or three years to establish themselves as a name, yeah. um, which is good. I'm very happy for them. And um, I think if that money stays in Australia, it's great for our economy, which yeah. is what we need. So I think from that point of view, I think from us, the backlog, I think we'll clear the backlog at some point. I think patients who want to come to me that will stay with me and I don't think that someone's going to say oh he's got a busy mm. thing I'm going to go so it doesn't work like that when you sort of pick your surgeon at that level you just stick with them um, we don't have much you know like school holidays you know I was talking to my wife about July well, where are you going to go I mean we should probably just stay back and finish the clear the backlog and um and yeah, I think, you know, we've all had, you know, eight, nine weeks off, so we back to work. <laughs> um, but I think collectively we have to look at the COVID-19 situation as as a way of, um, you know, helping the economy back. There are people who've suffered. Um, and I think, you know, if we can go back to elective surgery in a safe manner, we should, because I'm a great believer of the economy going back to normality in a country that's really well protected from COVID-19. We need to put jobs back on, yeah. um, nurses, orderlies, you know, everyone associated with the private health system, which is huge, um, need to go back on and trigger the economy. Mm. I just want to touch on uh, ARPA and regulations and stuff, but sort of link it to your social media, because you're very well known for your social media, Instagram. I know you use Snapchat and sort of calm down on that. But how have you leveraged social media, and and what are the kind of problems with it at the same time? Um, I think it's a fine line between what APRA. I think this is all new for APRA too, for medical board, for people. And look, APRA is a body that essentially is a reactive body and it reacts to people and what it does it reacts to your um, colleagues complaining about you <laughs> that's what it is it's <laughs> Let's reactive. Be real. the people it doesn't, complaining it doesn't, are your competitors it's the police um, at Rose Bay that gets called every um, five minutes about a house party two in the morning mm. and if they phone calls don't come they'd much rather sit in the you know there and have no issues with your house party you can so your so our level of social media is to do with what everyone else does in the country. Yes. So if we get to a point, and we are now getting to a point that social media has become so mainstream among, say, plastic surgeons, those complaints are just going to die down. Because everyone's so doing in it. 2013, when you're the first guy, or 2012, the first guy doing social media, of course you're going to get attacked because 99% of the country says, what the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> or when I did Snapchat, it was like, oh my God, Snapchat, how do you take an iPhone in theater and Snapchat, it's got bacteria on it i read this one from a colleague of mine actually a friend of mine i couldn't believe the article said that you know you can catch infection 
from the phone and the guy who said it has got the highest infection rate in, in, in Sydney. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous because you know, I've worked in but theater. But this is, this, is, this is what jealousy does. The yep. people that you are friends with and you sit and have a drink with, they turn on you. Yes. And that's what, un- unfortunately, the jealousy in the profession, not just between plastic and cosmetic, but amongst plastic surgeons, the competitiveness, the type A personality that drove you to become a doctor, yeah. drove you further to become a surgeon, plastic surgeon, inadvertently it just attacks the person that you might be very friendly with because the ego surpasses yeah. anything else so if the person does social media it says oh that's an unfair advantage i don't want to do it i just don't want to put the effort into it and i don't like it but let me do enough damage so the other person doesn't do it either mm. but they don't see the global movement the mm. global movement of social media can't be stopped by two surgeons um, in Sydney, sitting in the suburbia, feeling disgruntled, is a is a movement much bigger than everybody else. Yeah. And now, and now everyone's jumping on. You'll find Jake that April will say, "Okay, what well, you are doing it, so off you go, yeah. and just wor- work yeah. it out amongst yourselves. This yeah. is a ball, go and play." And yeah, they've got bigger issues to deal with. Yeah. Can I ask going back to social media? Um, obviously, you know, five years ago, some of your colleagues weren't doing it at all, and you were a pioneer. How's it changed your practice? And and do you think it's it's skewed or changed the type of people coming to seek you out um i think initially when um you do anything new you just get this upsurge of people coming just to check you out and mm. see who are you as it's as it's you know the guy who talks on the thing and you kind of know that but i think with time what we did in my practice we replaced it with from, from um, with print media and stuff like marketing so we just took one marketing mechanism and just put it into say social media and then thought you know what can we achieve with social media and um and refine it and make it more educational Mm. and i I felt and i still do my snapchats were educational when i was teaching and you know doing showing structures and i had so many uh, uni students um, follow me around the world especially my snapchat we had people from europe and america and at the height of it it was it was exciting and i was putting something back but you know People ask me all the time, why did you stop? I was like, it was, I was just tired. You know, it was time consuming. Yeah. You'd go and spend all this. And then you had to have this background of noise for people still in, in certain, you know, um, you know, organization criticizing that, oh, no, don't do Snapchat, do this. And it's like, okay, you know what? It's easy just to walk away from it. And I felt, um, I was saying that to Adrian when I, and uh, Paul when they spoke to me a few weeks ago. I found just doing the experiment with Snapchat, people, the younger people and guys were interested in the gory stuff. I think most women um, who are having a tummy tuck don't want to see all that. Yeah. And I found, okay, let's just have a few shots in the theater and let's just talk about the journey. If you watch a lot of my videos, it's about the journey beforehand, a little bit in between, but then how they look at eight weeks and how they look at 16 weeks and make the journey more educational, which in, in effect, makes my life easier and my nurse's life easier because oh yeah i've seen that on your instagram you yeah. are swollen at six weeks you're not flat you know but that's what amazing is about the people that criticize you is in actual fact you're you're creating the whole patient journey including the gory stuff what actually happens the consent process yeah. everything and then someone's turning around to you saying that's wrong and yet their argument is patient safety and you're <laughs> yeah. and you're presenting the whole story in a very open factual way yeah i think people don't realize to the extent how smart patients are and if they're not watching that they're watching some youtube of some american surgeon performing the surgery completely different to the way you do it it's much better and that's not 
you know, proper way of educating the consumer because you got to see what your surgeon does. There's no point, you know, having a builder come and do your house, but he shows someone else's website. Yeah. <laughs> and I know people do that. In, in, and it's like I've heard patients say, I went on someone's and they show the YouTube of a tummy tuck of an American surgeon. It's like, well, that's not really, you should be showing a YouTube of what he does yeah. because that's more realistic of what's going to happen to yourself. So I think people take the view that, you know, like, it's pure marketing. There's no education behind it. You're just doing it for your own good. Well, it's fine. There's no issue, but how come everyone else is doing it then? Mm. Um, I think the guys who are doing it in a way that um, is ed- educational, it, it comes across that way. And at some point, of course, there's a marketing element to it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, um, but you got to do it in a tasteful manner that attracts people. If you yeah. have only gory stuff and doctor sitting there with glasses and talking about this, that's, that's, that's why what a medical student will um, be attracted to. Yeah. A housewife does not want that sort of full. You got to show some after shots, make it more um, accessible, and um, and then you 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 uh, appeal to a broader. Um, set of people yeah i did um an evening before christmas where we did an injectables evening where we invented sorry we invited about 50 people who we knew were a little bit on the fence or didn't want fillers they were quite adamant that that wasn't for them and we wanted to educate them and showcase and and i did a live injection of a full face in front of them it was amazing once they saw the process and the fact that it wasn't painful and the result was good that they were like oh actually this is pretty good Where, where do i sign yeah so if you show them the path from start to finish rather than just you know a new pair of boobs i think it just connects the dots for people yeah i think i I think that's very true jake i think if you go from this is before and this is at 12 months it's a bit of you're setting yourself up and i think if you say with mama mommy makeovers if you don't show the bruising and the swelling and the fact that not everything is perfect from Mm. get-go i think um you actually make your nurse's job easier and your job easier yeah. because mm. it's like I've seen that I've seen the scars and that they, they don't look flat from day one it takes mm. you know two years for them to mature and I think mm. I think the, the patients need to know that I think it's part of our job I mean you go to a cardiac surgeon or a brain surgeon you don't sit there and ask the same set of questions you ask a plastic surgeon or have a certain expectation of a heart surgeon, you know, it's a different world. And, you know, you don't expect a cardiac surgeon to have an Instagram where he open, you know, even if he does good on him, but it's not expected yeah. because you, you're dealing with disease process and don't, and I make that differentiation the whole time about, you know, you're dealing, you're not dealing with a disease process in plastic surgery, altering something good, hopefully to something a bit better. And um, that's where you need to be a, not a pure, pure doctor or surgeon in the sense. And that's what I was saying. You've got to have a very thick skin when you talk about reviews because I doubt very much a cardiac surgeon, even if does a full vein graft if one of the grafts fail get someone to go and trash them on, 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 on somewhere <laughs> by the review it just doesn't happen because it was dealing with a, um, a disease process and this whole concept of look I did I did my best does apply that does not apply in cosmetic yeah. surgery yeah now I'm not sure where you perceive yourself to be in terms of your career trajectory whether you're at the beginning the middle or, or towards the end <laughs> I don't know but um, what are your hopes and thoughts or for the industry, like what would you like to see happen overall, and, and oh. where do you think it's going? 
Um, I'm definitely not at the beginning. And <laughs> I would think a middle is even a stretch. But anyway, um, I've, look, I've had a good career and I'm enjoying what I'm doing. But um, I just can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. So um, I, what I want the specialty to become, and this is like a, a dream I've got, and I voice it all every now and then to my colleagues is, we have a better training system and I keep coming back in this podcast because I feel um, I first wanted to be a plastic surgeon in 1990 and I looked at the program then then I became a plastic well started my training in 2000 10 years later and I saw a little bit of movement in, in the way people got trained and then obviously trained till 2003 2004 till now and I just have seen a very very gradual curve in the way um, surgeons are getting trained and um, some of the best surgeons come out and they are very average cosmetic surgeons in, in our specialty and I feel that's something that I would, I would like to see rectified and we have um, very good doctors who want to be a plastic surgeon and amongst them a select group of guys who for the right reason choose to become cosmetic plastic surgeons or plastic surgeons who practice cosmetic surgery not to use the word cosmetic surgeon and they are trained properly and given the right qualification and i think if that happens we as a specialty will thrive into the future and our patient which is our consumers around um, australia and, and australia in a lot of respect has been at the forefront of a lot of things to do with plastic surgery, be it reconstructive, a um, lot of medical stuff. And I think if we can change that and give back to the world, because we're not part of European Union, we're not part of a big Middle Eastern thing, which we're not part of a, a North American trade. We are a little island or biggish island with little people, amount of people. And we, we can do this. We can bring some changes to plastic surgery training that people can look at us and say, oh, yeah, well, Australia did it. Um, why can't we just do the same model and stop the infighting and stop other specialties? If we do it properly, we can stop other specialties encroaching into plastic surgery. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but if we did this 20 years ago, I think rhinoplasty would have stayed in um, plastic surgery. I think you know, facial surgery would have stayed purely in plastic surgery and not shared by eye surgeons and this and that. And it's not the sharing bit of it, it's the fact that the training is not there and hence it creates a vacuum and other people encroach it and say, okay, well, you guys are not doing it properly. Let, let us take this. Kurosh, I think that's a great moment to end. Nice sort of vision of the future. Thank you for your time. Thanks, guys. Um, really appreciate it. If people want to reach out to you, I know you've got a waiting list of about 100 years, but <laughs> if they do want to uh, maybe just yeah. look at your Instagram yeah. and Snapchat yeah. first yeah. to be educated. If they like to get their breasts done in 2030. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, what's no, your um, Instagram and Snapchat handles? Uh, Dr. Tabacoli is Instagram. Um, Snapchat is Dr. Tabacoli too. And um, yeah, so just reach out to us, website as well. And i um, always happy to um, see new patients and, you know, be part of their journey of, um, you know, cosmetic surgery. Be just an opinion piece. They want to come and see me for a second opinion. I'm more than happy to see them or, um, you know, if they want to choose me as a surgeon. Awesome. Thank, Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you so you. much. 
for our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests. 